Welcome to the Global Media Cultures Podcast. I'm your host, Juan Llamas Rodriguez. Today we are discussing the circulation of songs across different media and how social movements can take up these sounds to make specific political interventions. We have two guests with us today. Our first guest is Dr. Asmin Punitambekar, an associate professor in the Department of Media Studies at the University of Virginia. His research and teaching focus on the impact that globalization and technological change have on the workings of media industries, on the formation of audiences, and on cultural identity and politics. He is the author of From Bombay to Bollywood, The Making of a Global Media Industry from NYU Press, the co-author of Media Industry Studies, and the co-editor of three books, Global Bollywood, Television at Large in South Asia, and Global Digital Cultures, Perspectives from South Asia. He is currently working on a co-authored book provisionally titled The Digital Popular, Media, Culture, and Politics in Networked India. He also serves as an editor of the peer-reviewed journal Media, Culture, and Society, and co-edits the Critical Cultural Communication book series for NYU Press. Aswin, welcome to the Global Media Cultures podcast. Thank you, Juan. Thank you for having me on the series. Our second guest is Sriram Mohan. He's a PhD candidate in the Department of Communication and Media and Rackham Predoctoral Fellow at the University of Michigan Ann Arbor. His research examines digital media cultures, political expression, and state-citizen relationships in South Asian contexts. His work has appeared in journals like Television and New Media, the International Journal of Communication, and International Journal of Cultural Studies. He is the other co-editor of Global Digital Cultures, Perspectives from South Asia and serves as an associate editor of the peer-reviewed journal Bioscope, South Asian Screen Studies. Shiran, welcome to the Global Media Cultures Podcast. Thank you very much, Juan. Very happy to be here. So I want to start by asking you, uh, can you tell us more about what your work is about? Why does it interest you? Why do you think it's an important area that needs to be studied? So like you said, both Sriram and I are interested in understanding the impact that globalization has uh, and both globalization and technological change, these twin forces that they've had on the workings of media industries, the way audiences come together around different kinds of uh, media texts and cultural identity and politics. And our site for exploring these questions is South Asia and India in particular. But we approach this site not as a place that is somehow exceptional uh, or culturally different, uh, always in comparison to some centers in the West, but rather as a part of the world from which we can examine the intersections of various local, national, regional, sometimes inter-regional, and certainly global forces that shape the media cultures we are all interested in. And we feel that playing up the global and interconnected nature of media is particularly crucial if we want to avoid the problem of always centering the Anglophone Western world. And so, for example, students may recognize already that since media and communication studies began in the 1970s, its object of study has changed in quite fundamental ways. Right? Almost every decade there's a new object of study. And in the beginning, media were thought almost wholly within the framework of discrete nation states, and that media could only be understood in relation to those national politics and cultures. But since then, thanks in part to technological diffusion and innovations, driven by large world uh, encircling processes, this landscape is now unrecognizable. It's changed beyond recognition. So we draw inspiration from scholars uh, like Carol Breckenridge and Arjuna Padurai 
and their statement on global modernity where they say, and we work with that premise to say that any medium, radio, film, television, and now a range of digital platforms, they are now everywhere. They're simultaneously everywhere. And they're also interactively everywhere. So any given medium is not only everywhere, but it's also in a series of somewheres. And so for us, that particular somewhere happens to be South Asia, from where we then look at various media infrastructures and platforms. And given the state of the world right now, uh, as we're producing this podcast, uh, it, I, we both feel like this transnational and transregional perspective is even more important, given that frictions more than flows seem to be defining global connections right now in this moment we're living through. Today, we're discussing specifically your article called A Sound Bridge, Listening for the Political in a Digital Age, which was published in the International Journal of Communication, Volume 11 in 2017. Can you give us a brief history of this article, like when you began working on it? How did the project originate? How did the ideas sort of change in the process of researching and, uh, and co-writing it? Yeah, so my master's thesis was on Tamar film music. Uh, and why this colivery was one of the songs that I'd actually written about. So when I started my PhD in 2015, and Aswin was at the University of Michigan then, and we started working together, we realized that we'd both been thinking about the song, its circulation, um, and, and how there were things happening with it or around it uh, beyond the discourse of just viral marketing or viral marketing success from some South Asia. Um, so we'd both been thinking about it, but we'd, we then managed to, I think, uh, work together to find, okay, what are the points of interest around this song? Like, why does it seem to appeal to us? Why does it matter to us? So as we continue to track the afterlife of the song on social media, so this is like three to four years after the song has released, um, and it still continues to keep popping up on our feeds, and we realized there was something there, that there, that there was a bridge between the song collaboration and the hashtag collaboration. And it increasingly became clear to us that the sonic connections there had to be explored carefully uh, to understand its enmeshing within deeply mediated political cultures. And, and once we figured out the idea of the sound bridge, uh, the sound bridge is sort of an oral crossfade uh, as one that connects uh, different contexts, things really began to fall in place. So I think this took a while to write. We, I think wrote over the course of a year meeting every week and and you know sitting together and writing together which was a really fascinating experience so you know i'd be typing and there'd be like text disappearing on the screen on google docs uh, and i would do the same task when and we kept doing that and over a period of time uh, we were i think you know we got to a point where we felt okay i think we have it done so you mentioned the sound bridge which is the, sort of the the conceptual one of the main conceptual contributions could you can you elaborate on that why how did you settle on the sound bridge? Why, what is the sound bridge doing for, the, for explaining the phenomenon that you're thinking about? Yeah. So uh, the sound bridge, uh, as, we, as we mentioned in the piece, refers to sort of an editing technique that's used to smoothen out transitions in films. So it's often used to connect two scenes together by overlapping the sound from one scene to another. Or sometimes it's used to foreshadow stuff. For instance, uh, in a movie, you could have the roar of, of a jet that could slowly turn into the growl of a car to mark the character's move from an aircraft to an automobile, right? So we were drawn to it, I think, as an idea because at the heart of it, it's an oral technique. 
So much of our scholarship on media and especially digital media relies on visual metaphors and textual approaches. Uh, whereas so much of our lives online, whether it's the use of hashtags or other viral formats on like let's say TikTok or any other platform, relies so much on sound. So we thought it was important to prod at the creative sound work that was happening around hashtag collaboration. And the notion of the sound bridge really gave us the opening to talk about the song being used to connect diverse contexts, to transition from the cultural to the political as we do on a day-to-day -day basis. I guess this might be a good place to just quickly outline uh, in brief like the two main sort of interventions, right? So just picking up on that thing about the over-reliance on visual and textual metaphors to talk about our media experiences. The first thing we realized was uh, to just foreground the fact that our engagement or experience with public culture is completely intersensorial, right? It's a bodily thing with all kinds of senses coming into play. And so this article was an attempt to explore the significance of sound and listening. And once, we did, once, we, once that became clear to us, we realized we also need to offer a model for how to trace a particular sound. Uh, it could be a chant, it could be a film song, it could be a piece of dialogue. Uh, that emerges from the domain of popular culture, often mainstream commercial popular culture, and that somehow becomes transformed into a more, uh, at an almost infrastructural level. It becomes a communicative infrastructure that can host all kinds of other expressions, aspirations, desires, uh, that can span the spectrum from the progressive to the reactionary and everything in between. And then finally, what we also want realized was it's not enough to just stop there, but we also have to then think about well, does this then suggest that there is a much more, uh, a much larger shift happening in terms of the cultural foundations of media and citizenship? And doing that means looking at media institutions from where some of these sounds come from, looking at digital platforms with their unique affordances, and looking carefully at audience imaginaries and, their, and the range of creative practices. Right. So the call of very sound in particular comes from um, a film. Could you give us a brief sort of overview of where it comes from and then how does it get taken up by the different political and social uh, movements that you refer to? Yeah. So Colavery uh, is, uh, is, the, is the, why this Colavery, as it's called, is the, is the song from uh, 2000, uh, was released in November 2011 as the sort of promotional track for a Tamil language film called Three. Um, so the, the quick sort of context to that was that uh, somebody had leaked, somebody in the pro within the production had leaked a, a version of the song, a scratch version of the song. And, and the makers of the film panicked and said, oh, okay, that's, you know, we really need to, you know, address this somehow quickly. So they managed to finish up the final version of the song and quickly put it up. And they felt that given that there was already a scratch version of the song out, the only way to keep attention to the song was, you know, to do a making video. So they put it out with a video of the of the person singing, the music director, you know, recording it, etc. Rhythm, correct? And then it really, really takes off. There's something about it that makes it really catchy. It's very simple. It's very, very straightforward. It's a simple tune. Anybody can sing along. 
it it comes with english subtitles sony music was the uh, i think label so they had english subtitles in the video as well so i think it helped access a lot of that so it becomes you know crazy popular in a very short span of time and then it sparks off a discussions on a range of issues including gender and sexual violence caste injustice etc but its mimetic value was perhaps most forcefully employed in discussions of political corruption so this was in 2011 so when the song it released there had already been months of protests and demonstrations across india to introduce a, a citizens ombudsman bill to tackle what was seen as endemic political corruption so this was after a string of high profile scandals uh, over the past few years at that point including a particularly sensational one around the allocation of uh, mobile telephony and internet spectrum right so there was range of scams range of scandals uh, you know people were very angry and frustrated and a uh, couple of the key figures were somebody called anna hazare a gandhian sort of figure uh, who helped mobilize the movement he was one of the central figures and there was another right to information activist uh, called arvind kejriwal uh, who you know was emerged as a sort of lieutenant and became another central character who later split to form his own political party and who is now the chief minister of uh, new delhi so so much of this had already occurred even before kolavari had released so i think one of the things that's important to remember is that uh, you know songs don't particularly you know emerge out of nowhere and cause like political revolutions or whatever i think i think that's a you know bad way to think about it uh, but given the highly mediatized nature of the protests and the percolation of public anger uh, around questions of corruption Colavery uh, provided sort of a near perfect vehicle to resonate this anger and frustration through a range of mashups remixes and other sort of creative uses and it was a tamil film song so uh, you know it had been completely removed from its context and it circulated well beyond that uh, and as far as tamil films are concerned it's one of the biggest film industries in india uh, it's largely based out of the south indian city of chennai uh, which is a media capital where films uh have been produced in a variety of languages so tamil films and especially tamil film songs have had outside circulation uh for quite a while now and this seems to have only expanded in the age of youtube and algorithmic recommendation right and it seems like it's something the producers themselves were banking on right the the producing that making of video um and putting it with subtitles it's like this will be perfect because it circulates widely yeah um people don't need to know tamil to catch on to the song right they can just follow the subtitles as well and as you said it's a, it's a really catchy really catchy tune that's right and i don't think even they expected uh the the sort of sheer scale of its circulation but but like you said they did do much of the groundwork to help it circulate or you know nudge it along certainly right right and that's crucial too right to think about it's not uh there's never a sort of direct cause and effect right is they were thinking about how do we uh respond to the um unofficial release of the film and then so they released it in a way that allowed it to circulate fully but then all these other protests were already happening mm-hmm. and so it was able to latch on mm-hmm. right which i think it's it's something that we uh i find we need to always counter right this idea that like media is the the sort of sole cause of something right is the the song did this or twitter did this and therefore the revolution came but it's actually a number of things that just happened to come together um and that that sort of recreates the the moment or expansive phenomenon if you will in some way 
Yeah, I think it's okay to um, say that at least for the last 25 odd years, I think it's perfectly fine to say that any political movement, any social movement or so on, is thoroughly mediatized in the sense there is no getting away from media logics at this point in time. But that shouldn't then go to the next step of saying that the, the directionality is media leading to things. That's, that's one step too far. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's not a one-to-one cause and effect sort of relationship, right? Yeah. Things are complex. So specifically to the Calvary moving from the Why This Calvary song to the sort of hashtag Calvary moment, um, you situate this within the, uh, what you quote, the resounding of the public sphere, uh, which is the term that Kate Lacey uses. Um, could you could you explain a little bit like what Lacey's getting at with the resounding of the public sphere and why this is important to to your uh, project as well? Sure. So Kate Lacey, uh, in several articles and especially in her book called Listening Publics, she argues that listening has to be understood as absolutely foundational to the workings of any public sphere. And she points out that the various forms of communication that happen in public or for that matter in personal and private spaces as well, that listening is central to all of it. And that as an act that is so central to any form of communication, and one that's also very participatory, right? I mean, we make the mistake of assuming that listening is passive, and in fact, it is an actually deeply participatory and active thing to listen carefully, that it is actually for her thoroughly political. And as she sees it, and we agree with her, that political science and political theory does not consider listening practices and tends to remain focused on things like speech, expression, uh, visibility, and even appearance. What kinds of people appear, what kinds of bodies are allowed to appear and be visible. And those are valid concerns, to be sure. But she says that we've tended to focus only on those. So for us, this line of critique was crucial because we recognized the silence around sound and listening in post-colonial and global media studies as well. So while there is a wealth of scholarship um, uh, on the expansion of media infrastructures beginning in the mid-1980s across many post-colonial nations, all of of whom are making the transition away from statist, development-oriented media institutions towards more market-oriented, globally uh, integrated media economies as they were making that transition, a lot of people have written about those transitions. Uh, They've written about it from a regulation and policy perspective, from audience perspective, all kinds of angles. And so what we realized was even there, there was a silence around sound. So we returned to a couple of key exceptions to that work. Uh, There's, for example, Peter Emanuel has a brilliant book on cassette culture, analog cassettes. Um, And Vinod Pavrala, another scholar based in Hyderabad, has uh, done some wonderful work on community radio, for example, during the time of this moment of 90s globalization. And so what we tried to do was connect that work to more recent stuff in sound studies. Uh, for example, people like Rahul Mukherjee and Abhigyan Singh have written about SD cards and how songs travel through SD cards and people share them on the various devices. Uh, Jennifer Lynn Stover has written about the sonic color line on sound and racialized forms of listening and violence. Uh, or Nabil Zuberi, for example, who writes about listening while Muslim. So that's broadly speaking what we mean by and what Kate Lacey meant by resounding the public sphere. How do we rethink a history of media transformation that laid the foundation for something like Colivary from a sonic angle and not just from a uh, visual filmic kind of way? Right, for sure. And this leads into thinking about 
taking the sound bridge, which usually was tied to, um, it's only the bridge, right? It's the images in the film. And what we're interested in is how these are connected by the sound, but actually foregrounding the sound aspect of it, right? And the listening aspect of it. Um, I was wondering, I, I think sure I'm starting to get to this I'm mentioning TikTok, right? But I'm interested in how sound bridge as a concept helps us to think about differently about this sort of circulation rather than just calling it a meme, right? Rather than just saying it's color very was a meme and then it helped with all sorts of political expression. Um, but how does this think of it as a sound bridge and as a sound, a sonic cue that becomes a sound bridge more helpful than thinking of it as, as only a meme, let's say. Right. Um, so that's, that's a fascinating question because um, if you look at the article's title, we talk about listening for the political in a digital age. So a key aspect of sound uh, as it is, is in, in terms of what do we, what do we listen for? Uh, how, do we, how do we listen carefully? How do we, so then it brings about, I think, feminist concerns around care uh, mm -hmm. in a way that I think a lot of the con conversation around memes, et cetera, doesn't always do. Right. And, and memes especially have sometimes had an unsavory reputation as being uh, associated with more reactionary, more sexist elements as well. Uh, and more racist elements as well. So um, what, what sound does in some sense is uh, make the idea of media more of a process. Uh, media as a social practice is very, very clear when you think about it through the lens of sound and listening. So for example, one good way of thinking about social practices, we were talking about this in preparation for this, and your question about the... Uh, very specific sound of the oo, the epenthetic oo sound that yeah, yeah, so yeah. many of the that the song played with, and that so many of the English language words were then made to sound uh, or made to or they were resounded in a Tamil idiom with the oo sort of epenthetic, right? So that's a great example where we notice that, interestingly enough, the more expressly political uses of Kolaveri emerged from contexts that were actually quite far removed from the world of Tamil cinema. And even the mm -hmm. kind of political fan practices that have marked uh, Tamil and other South Indian film cultures for like five, six decades now. And so what was interesting was that the epenthetic did make a difference, quite simply, because that particular usage actually remains uh, quite wide but in pejorative ways, to often mock Tamil accents, and that often comes to stand in for a blanket South Indian voice and identity. So if there's a popular Bollywood, Hindi language Bollywood film, uh, sort of a stock so-called South Indian character would simply use the repentic U and be marked off as this distinct South Indian other. Right. Whereas in this case, it actually became useful in a sense and was picked up quickly, and it allowed people to rewrite the song's lyrics in relation to this ongoing sort of political movement, but using that uh, ooh sound that was already so familiar that they were primed for it uh, for so many years and decades. So that gives you a sense of how, why sound opens up ways of thinking about social practice and media practice. Yeah, and a fascinating sort of reclaiming of what is, would usually be used as a pejorative sound, right? Um, yeah. In order to mobilize it for, for different names. Yeah, that, that ooh at the end is, is very, um, really catches you too. And they even hard-coded in the subtitles. That's the interesting yeah. bit. They actually yeah. almost yeah. give you the script to remix it, the lyrics. Um, great. So 
so one of the things that you point out is not all sonic cues become sound bridges, right? There is there are specific ways in which sonic cues, which could be sort of any part of a song, um, any sort of clip of a sound, um, become more important, become something bigger, which is why you're calling a sound bridge. So could you elaborate on these characteristics? So you mentioned availability, performativity, um, and resonance. And what do these mean to you? Why why are these important to think about in terms of in terms of SoundBridge? Right. So when we talked about availability, performativity, and resonance in relation to quality, um, we also wanted to think about like the multiple meanings of something like availability. For instance, uh, this was a viral success, and you know a lot of you know it produced a lot of discourse and uh, you know popular writing about it being a viral marketing success, a, a digital marketing success, and stuff like that. And and surely there's something to that, but. Availability also goes beyond that. So, for instance, in Kolavari, uh, Kolavari literally in Tamil means murderous rage. Very is, is rage. And I think what really helped Kolavari, you know, was it was made available through the indeterminacy of something like rage. There's a lot of popular and popular public anger and rage and frustration around a range of issues, around a range of popular discontents that, uh, you know, Kolaveri was, you know, made itself available to. Right. So the rage, the rage wasn't the same as in the, in the film, but then there were all these other rages going on in, in society. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, in the film, it's really just cathartic rage of, you know, a boy basically uh, having been rebuffed by uh, his romantic sort of, you know, uh, attachment and him singing... Why this murderous rage? Uh, yeah. I mean, there's a different kind of gendered and violence around that kind of gendered violence. There's a history within Tamil cinema and Tamil film songs and a certain kind of masculinity being performed through the song. But that's not what gets taken up. The indeterminacy, like Sri Ram said, gets uh, picked up and attached to a different uh, circulation of sentiments. Right. And, and when you talk about performativity again, um, yes, it does get performed in a, in a range of places and by a range of people. But uh, what was really fascinating to us was how uh, enshrined the idea of performativity was uh, with respect to its use online. So we have a couple of tweets that we show in the, in the paper. There's a, there's a tweet where it's written in the tone and tune. As you know, when you read it, you can't just read it. You have to sing it. You have to be like, handle a suitcase. 2G scam, suitcase full of currency. Like when you listen to the song, it's the tweet is then part of that song. It's written in verse. It's written the in tweet. verse. Yeah, right. it is written to be performed. And I think that was another key aspect of this sonic cue being taken up as well. Um, and the third thing we talk about is in terms of its resonance. And here we draw on Michael Shutson's work uh, where he talks about the resonance of a uh, of a pub, of a symbol or a cultural artifact has to do with about how uh, a public emerges around it how cultural relationships between the object tradition and audience emerges around it and i think that really really happened with uh, something like colavari like for instance you could take something like little nasex says uh, old town road and it is very resonant in some sense um, but, you know, there's not a broader political or cultural relation between the object, tradition and audience as much, uh, you know, that lets it, you know, transform into a range of political uses. 
So I think thinking about resonance in this broader way, not just as oh a lot of people like it or it's resonating with a lot of people, but to think about uh, what sort of cultural relationships it establishes or helps to unearth, and how a public gathers around it becomes really really crucial. And I think it's worth quickly pointing out also that uh, it definitely was helped by the fact that this emerged from a very playful domain of popular culture. Uh, it's very fun. It's like a bunch of cool people, like in a very MTV making of kind of style, hanging out in a recording studio and just chilling and you know, you know, just ribbing, goofing off, and just seem, somehow magically produce this super hit song, right? And I think that did help because there are other sounds that are just as Uh, available that are incredibly resonant, but are so loaded with political meaning already when they enter public domain, that any use of it would invite incredible state violence and censorship. It would be shut down within a matter of minutes uh, by the state. There would be all kinds of pressure on digital platforms to shut things down. So one of the keywords, for example, in the South Asian context, in the Indian context, would be azadi, which means freedom. And because of the Indian state's uh, occupational sort of settler colonial sort of relationship with some parts of the territory, any use of that as a resonant sound would go nowhere. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating sort of flip side to um, a sort of phenomenon where there's like particular protest songs, for example, right, that are there and taking up because the melody is so catchy, um, and so they're sort of evacuated of that political. Um, strength but here the the phenomenon is the opposite right is the the song itself didn't actually bring with it with itself all of these political um, connotations but because it was so catchy it was able to be mapped on to all of these political phenomenon um, which made it all the more resonant as you point out to mm-hmm. to different groups and different systems and crucially it allows for different social movements to to latch onto it mm-hmm. right so it's not just the one social movement that um resonates with the colivary, but it's actually different ones with different aims at uh, different moments, but it's actually the, the sound, the sound bridge, the sound itself is the one that keeps uh, reverberating throughout, mm-hmm. right? Absolutely. So let's, let's talk about some macro level issues. Um, specifically, I'm really interested in, as, as you pointed out, there's now um, any sort of digital media is transnational in, in, in nature. Um, it moves all, all around the world. It is probably hosted on a server that is halfway around the world, and then it comes back. Um, so as scholars, we think about what are the questions of circulation and how do you argue for a, a given object, sort of like how did it move around the world or why was it significant that it moved beyond just the place where it was produced? Um, but then as, as trying to build an argument around it, there's the question of evidence, right? So how do you quant- how do you argue for uh, an object significance, there's the quantification argument, right? It had this many retweets, it had this many views on YouTube, and therefore it was important. But is that enough? Are there some qualitative ways of, of thinking about social significance? Uh, or as, as you've been pointing out, sort of question of resonance of, of media at, around the world or in different places? So I think we'll, we'll both sort of get at this in uh, slightly different ways. So I think... It, uh, just right off the bat, it's worth stating our particular disciplinary and our methodological orientations, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that we are both trained as media and cultural studies scholars. Uh, we tend to read widely in this field, but also cognate fields, including cultural anthropology, uh, science and technology studies. And we do that with an inter-Asian lens, which means 
they're interested in Asia uh, and scholarship around that, but also with Middle East and North Africa regions because of the long history of interconnections going back almost a millennium. And when we do engage the social sciences, we engage the more interpretive side of things, which quite simply means we tend to favor archival research, ethnographic field research, and above all, very, very close readings of all sorts of texts from a piece of archival memo to one single tweet um, like we were talking about. So with this project, our goal was never to quantify likes, retweets, or even do any kind of network analysis to see where Colaveri moved from, you know, a, tweet, a tweet to a Facebook page to a nightly news show. We never set out to do that. Now, this doesn't let us off the hook, though, because when it comes to demonstrating significance, we do have to do that. And here, I think we would point to scholars like Andre Brock and Laurie Kendall, who have argued for what they call a deep data approach. So they refute the pushback against the idea that the only response to big data analysis is small data, because that comes with all the pejorative connotations of smallness of scale, smallness of significance, and so on, and they really reject that. And so for us, what a deep data approach looks like, and that we've tried to model in this article, is to, to begin with, to pay attention to questions of form, to ask, what kind of a song is Colaveri in the first place? What is the history of this type of song? What are the industrial and cultural contexts from which it emerges and circulates? And that, when we put all of these things together, maybe it helps us understand why this song became popular, not some other. I mean, there are thousands of Tamil film songs every year, right? Why this and not another? So asking these sorts of questions might help us get to that question of popularity. And more important than the popularity, it's affective pull. There's something deeply affective about it. You get into it. Yeah. You, you can't avoid being caught up in it. Uh, in its, uh, just in the tune, uh, in the video itself, and so on. And so we also then pay attention to matters of intertextuality, right? So which is, and especially in a global media class, this becomes all the more crucial when things move across all kinds of borders, national borders, regional borders, is what is being referenced when audiences draw something into their own world and resituate it, or in this case, retune it to their own particular concerns. And in doing so, what kinds of representations then become possible? Then we can ask what kinds of representations. But to do that, you need to do this careful uh, historical work, questions of form, industrial context, cultural context. So that's what, to me, uh, the question of, that's where the question of significance to me uh, gets addressed. So you end by sort of gesturing at, at what you see as a sort of an issue with this kind of research, right? Where, where you say the, there's a problem with framing the link between the popular and the political in terms of effects. So could you expand on that? What is, what is the issue with that? Um, and why, why do you see there's, we need to move beyond the sort of framing it only as effects? Yeah, so the, the ethics sort of approach to, to let's say an artifact like Colivery becomes too centered around the artifact. Because if you have to start tracing FX, then it becomes about, you have to figure out a point and then have to trace the effects of that point or that object or that artifact. Whereas uh, what we're really interested in is the question of the ceaseless remediation of public cultures. Um, and, and how artifacts like this participate in that remediation and, and advance it in a, in a variety of directions. So there are deep historical relationships to take into account. One is, of course, uh, the, the history of the Tamil film song and how 
uh, its circulation and uh, its uptake changes through various eras, through the cassette era, then, then through you know online sharing and MP3s and being available on memory cards and then turning up on on you know platforms like YouTube or you know other uh, streaming music streaming platforms. And with each of these sort of moments, uh, there are various relationships being tugged and pulled into place. So there's a there's a certain way in which uh, there's a certain indeterminacy again to the connections between the popular and political that have to be explored in deeply contextualized ways and with and has to be well historicized. Uh, so a presentist sort of lens on this with a focus on specific effects uh, is less useful than paying attention to uh, the affective gestures that it then makes possible or generates. And that's the approach that we've really taken with uh, the Colavari paper. Right. And it gets to an earlier point, right, about not tying down the a sort of causal link, right? It wasn't mm -hmm. the song came out and the song produced everything by and of itself as if it existed in a vacuum, right? I think the a lot of the emphasis on um, indeterminacy is, is crucial rather than the sort of very one-to-one -one, uh, direction on what one media object will do, um, which it can't. We can't just isolate it in, in those ways. And, and at the same time, we can't use the indeterminacy as a sort of excuse to say, oh, yeah, you know, that's, that's just how it is. Uh, the, the indeterminacy is often uh, a function of various social and historical relationships. And I think as researchers, if we, if we map them out carefully uh, to the extent possible, I think that's valuable because that helps us understand why certain moments uh, produce certain artifacts and why those artifacts, uh, you know, generate a certain range of affects. So, for example, in the article, we talk about the distance that uh, that social context, Indian popular culture, has moved from a song that released in, I think, the mid-90s, early to mid-90s. It was called Take It Easy, Urvashi. And incredibly popular, just burst onto the scene at the moment when MTV and Channel V, two very popular music TV channels, had just made their presence felt for the first time in the Indian context. So these songs were on every top 10 rotation, watched endlessly. People would record it on their video uh, VCRs and watch it endlessly. Um, but in that moment of this sort of exuberance and this promise of uh, globalization of joining a market economy uh, and the turn to a decidedly capitalist sort of sector was about take it easy. You have a problem with corruption, take it easy. You have a problem with the buses not showing up on time, take it easy. But then by the time Colibri comes along, it's murderous rage. So mapping that historical transition of how market-led globalization, market desires had reached a certain level of incredible frustration that was then being indexed by all kinds of protest movements, gender-related, sexual violence-related, economic-related, of course, that I think doing that kind of work gives us better lens than simply asking, did Colaveri impact the way the anti-corruption movement played out? Well, yes, but also, no, there's much more to that story than just that. Right. So the Colaveri becomes an entryway into thinking about all these things, uh, an inextricable entry into these things, right? You couldn't have made this argument or this research by thinking about another sound because this was the sound that affected all of this as wow. well. Right. Yeah, sure. So... So this was published in 2017. Um, have you built on this or expanded on this work since? So we've done a couple of other things. So the language question became really interesting to us. Like you asked uh, one early on about 
uh, white Tamil, white Tamil film song, and so on. I think one of the things we've done is try to look at why, what is the enduring significance of languages, and especially regional cultures that are defined around language when it comes to the way digital platforms move around the world. So when YouTube tries to become part of, let's say, the Asian uh, landscape, what are the ways in which YouTube, YouTube starts to do local language-related things at a programming level, content level, acquiring and building a library, but also at an algorithmic level, what are the kinds of things they have to do to resonate with cultural formations that are deeply linguistic in nature? Uh, so we've done a little bit of work on that in an article uh, that we published recently. And since then, we've also moved on to doing this edited anthology that you mentioned on global digital cultures, where once again, language and region figure prominently, but also helping us move beyond purely nation-centric ways of thinking about it. So for example, if you look at uh, streaming video in South Asia, there are platforms uh, that are language-oriented that crisscross the borders of nation-states that were established after British rule. So there's a Bengali language platform, for example, called Hoichoi, that is immensely popular, that moves across the state of West Bengal, which is in India, but also shares a border with Bangladesh, which is also a Bengali-speaking huge nation-state of many, many hundreds of millions, who are also on this watching streaming video on this platform. And then, of course, the last vast diaspora of Bengali-speaking speakers in the US, in the UK, and all over the world. So we're looking at those kinds of transnational, but at the same time, regional and linguistic kind of formations of media cultures that are enabled through digital platforms. And then finally, we're just starting to work on this book called The Digital Popular, which takes this piece that you just mentioned about how do we understand the link between the popular and the political in an era of digital platforms, and we're just starting to um, work on that piece. And then Triram, of course, is finishing uh, a wide-ranging dissertation that looks at other aspects of this. So. Um... There are multiple pieces to it. The one of the pieces that's relevant to this is I um, uh, there's a, the one chapter of my dissertation looks at protest music and protest songs, especially in relation to um, you know rap, feminist rap, uh, environmental, pro-environmental rap music, and anti-caste uh, music. Um, so one of the things I've really focused on is to think about uh, questions of defiance. Uh, to think about defiance is not just rebellion or disobeying, but as defiance coming to the sort of uh, vulgar Latin roots of the term uh, as thinking about uh, distrust, saying how do you express distrust in uh, a post-colonial state's vision of technological progress while using very much using the same tools uh, that that are supposed to be part of that narrative of progress. Right. right, and and how music provides a, a certain you know a certain affective registers get opened up by music, and uh, you know and when they when they see when they meet the eyes of the state how they get put down and how they reemerge online you know that flow is something that I that I track in the dissertation. Great, that's really interesting. Um, has there been anything? I mean, in the three years I guess since it came out, um, any new developments in the world or? even in, as you're working through these new projects that has gotten you to go back and rethink or add to or reflect on the sort of insights of, of this article of the Soundbridge? I think one of the key things for me, at least certainly, has been uh, to think more carefully about sound and listening um, and to pay attention to, uh, to the questions of form more carefully. 
like for instance uh, like we spoke about tiktok earlier and you know there's a you know and this has been popular with vine earlier and and now with tiktok as well is that small clips of sound really begin to become the anchor around which a, a range of cultural production then begins to happen Aswin Shriram thank you for joining us yeah this is great thank you so much for inviting us thanks a ton This episode of the Global Media Cultures podcast was produced by me and edited by Alan Yu. Opening song by Pottington Bear and closing credits music by Cloudmouth. This project is supported in part by the School of Arts, Technology and Emerging Communication at the University of Texas at Dallas. The Global Media Cultures podcast introduces media scholarship about the world to the world. I'm Juan Yamas Rodriguez. Thank you for listening.